If you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to open to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along with me as I read our passage for this morning. James 3, starting at verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, make us grateful for the satisfying work of Christ that covers the sins of our tongue and who gives us a new word in our mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if by chance you have skated through James in the first two chapters, never feeling a moment where you wince in conviction or discomfort. I don't know how that's possible, but if that has been the case for you, that time is over, right? There's no one that reads James 3, 1 through 12 and says, well, that's just not an issue for me. No one. The tongue is a problem. It's an issue. That's putting it mildly. There are three things that we want to take a look at here, consider what James is saying. Number one, that we all sin with the tongue, all of us. Number two, it's not only that we sin with the tongue, but that we simply can't control our tongue. And number three, 
that our tongue works from our nature. Now, let me just tell you up front, as you read this passage, probably the first two-thirds of this passage, I would say at least up to verse, or up through verse 8, all right, is probably just going to be taking one blow after another, right? One more lick from the good conviction from God's Word. You have to hang on, right? Because there is hope that comes at the end of the passage in verses 9 through 12, although it is even there somewhat masked or easily missed. So three things. One, we all sin with the tongue. Number two, we can't control our tongue. Number three, our tongue works from our nature. Look at the first two verses. We all sin with the tongue. It's an odd way that James starts off. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will incur or receive a stricter judgment. He doesn't mention teachers anywhere else in the rest of the passage. Nowhere else does teachers show up. It's just a one-off in the very first verse, which sort of opens the question up, is that really, is the credentials of a teacher, is that really first and foremost what James is concerned about? And I don't know that teaching in and of itself is the primary concern here, as much as the rest of the, the passage goes on to say, the concern is not so much about teachers, but the use of the tongue and speech. But here's why I think James uses this reference to teachers right off the bat. It's a way to grab our attention. So contextually, or historically, we might say, particularly for God's Old Testament people, the Jewish people, of whom we assume that most of the people that James is writing to in light of his greetings, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, that this is probably a Jewish Christian audience. The Old Testament people up and up through the time of Christ, and even to this day, place a high premium on the role and the office of a teacher, right? Rabbi was one of the ways that people honored Jesus when they addressed him. To call someone a rabbi or a teacher was a mark of distinction. The office of teacher or the role or position of a teacher would have been something that all the godly parents within Israel would have loved to see their young sons grow into. Nothing could make them prouder than to find out that their son had become a rabbi, had become a teacher of God's Word. So knowing that that position or that place, that office or occupation, had such a high value in the Jewish community, it is somewhat arresting, at least for the people who would have been reading this originally, to hear James actually trying to discourage people from going into that profession. And notice the way that he does it. He discourages them, listen, not many of you should want to be or should become teachers. Why? Because we, those of us who do have that responsibility, who do have that vocation, we shall receive, depending on your translation, the greater judgment or the greater condemnation. Now, just a point of clarification here before verse 2. I don't necessarily think that what James means here 
is that teachers are necessarily going to be judged by a completely different standard, and their judgment is going to be worse than everyone else's. Although there is something that you can say to the fact that Jesus himself taught that, to whom much is given, much is required, right? So those who know the word, presumably, best, will be held more accountable to the way that they live according to the rule of God's Word. So in that sense, it could be that there is a stricter judgment that teachers will receive. I think, though, probably a little bit more in line with what James has in mind is that what he is saying here is, let not many of you become teacher because we, those of us who make a living teaching God's Word, will have a greater share of the judgment that's to come. Here's why. Because ultimately, when you get to verse 2, verse 2 is the explanation for why teachers will receive a greater judgment. If not in degree, then at least in size. The reason is because, in verse 2, well, all of us stumble, but we especially stumble by what we say. Therefore, if it is most easy to sin by your speech, by your words. The last thing that you should want to do is to enter into a vocation or a calling in the church that is going to require you to speak more than what you ought to speak. Do you see? So, some of you right now are probably thinking, oh, no worries. I have no desire to do anything like that, right? And you're tempted right now to put your mind on autopilot and just to sort of let your eyes glaze over and not hear anything else that's said. But understand that whether you have a formal teaching office, recognized in the church or not, to, in some shape or form, to, some, to one extent or the other, all of us in some way are going to be involved in doing this very thing. If you're a parent, you are a de facto teacher. You teach and instruct your children. I dare say if you're a grandparent, you're also a teacher because you also are instructing and teaching your grandchildren. If you are a Christian who is willing, when opportunities arise, to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, you will in some way give voice to the teaching, instruction, and doctrine of Scripture. Even though it may be brief, even though it may be simple, you will inevitably in some way give direction or instruction to people. But the simple point here is to say that because it is so easy to sin, any, it's to sin with our mouth, with our speech, anything that would put us in a position where we are required or need to speak more is a position that we ought to be extremely cautious of. So much so that James says our speech and our use of the tongue is so difficult. Look in verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says... He's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. You know who the only person is who has no trouble with speech? Well, yes, Jesus. Do you know why Jesus is the only one 
who never had an issue with speech? Because Jesus was the only perfect man who ever lived. James seems to be saying here, it is more likely you have a greater chance of bringing the rest of your body in control so that you sin in no other way. You have a greater chance of doing that than you do of bringing your tongue under control. If you can control your tongue so that you never sin by what you say or what you speak, well, you must be perfect because nobody can do that. So how's that for encouragement? None of us can control the fact that we are going to sin with our speech because none of us are perfect. Can I put a little bit more pressure on us here this morning? James says in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. He's used language like that before about bridling ourselves, putting ourselves under constraint, under control. Look at 126, James 126. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now how are you doing? Chapter 3, chapter 1, I'm sorry, says that if you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is a sham. It means nothing. And then he comes to chapter 3 and he says, only someone who's perfect is able to bridle the tongue. It only gets worse. <laughs> it's not just merely that we can keep ourselves from sinning by what we say. The reason that we can't keep ourselves from sinning by what we say is because of how powerful and uncontrollable our tongue is. That's what comes in verses 3 through 8. Look with me at just some of the ways that James would have us picture our speech. In the first couple of verses, in 3 through 4, or 3 through 5, I should say, James wants to give us the idea that the tongue is so powerful that this little organ in our body can actually control our entire life. So he compares it to the little bit that you put in a horse's mouth. How much does a horse weigh, average horse? Where's Kathy? Kathy, how much does an average horse weigh? A thousand pounds. You control a thousand pound horse with a piece of metal that weighs less than a pound, I would assume, right? Or the big boats or ships or the ocean liners in our day, right? Multiple football fields, it's like a floating city that whole entire complex is directed and steered by a rudder that is only a fraction of the size of the entire boat.
the entire horse is controlled by what's in its mouth. The entire ship is controlled by the rudder that drives it and steers it. And you say, well, wait a minute. This sounds like a little bit of that name it and claim it nonsense. What do you mean that the tongue controls our life? It does. It does. For example, what you say does have a real impact on the way that you're going to live your life or the direction that your life takes. If you commit to your spouse, if you make plans and say, okay, on Friday we're going to do such and such with the kids, do you know what that statement has just done? That statement has now dictated everything else that's going to happen on Friday. It shapes and determines how much time you can spend in that late afternoon meeting and when you have to leave. It determines what other things you can do on Friday and what, other, and what things you can't do on Friday because you have said that you will do this with your wife and kids. You ask that girl out, you have no idea what you've just done. Your life, by asking that girl out on one date, has just changed forever. Because of what you said. I would like to take you out. Will you go out with me? And that girl, based on what she says, that changes her life. Yes, I will go out with you, or no, I won't go out with you. And then to the, the climax of it all, of course, is the wedding ceremony itself, where they say vows to one another. And the minister pronounces them, announces, says, declares that they are now husband and wife. They came in in one state, in one condition, and because of words that are said, they leave completely different. Adults, how much of the interaction or the words that you heard from your parents or from a teacher or from someone that you looked up to, how much of what they merely said to you, whether for good or for bad, had a dramatic impact on the course that your life took? Parents, the way that you speak to your children will direct, will condition the relationship that you have with them for years to come. Our tongue has the power to actually control and direct the very course of our lives. The problem is that that same instrument that we use to speak is incredibly corrupt and uncontrollable. So in verse 6, the tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity, it's set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. We don't have time to go description by description or metaphor by metaphor, so let me just pick a couple out here. The world of iniquity or the world of unrighteousness. You realize in the New Testament that, you, that most often, 
not in every case, context is, needs to determine it, but most often when the world, that term is used, the world is sort of a catch-all term that represents everything that is in hostility toward God, right? This world order is in active rebellion against its right creator and king. And James says, by using this description, that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness, a world of iniquity, he says that if you want to get a glimpse of the hatred that this natural order has against its creator and king, all you need to do is park it somewhere and listen to someone talk. Because they will say things that deny what the Creator and King has said. They will say things that give evidence to the fact that they love things that God has told us we ought to hate. Or that we hate things that God has said we ought to love. A world of rebellion is summed up and is contained in this little gaping hole on the front of our face. It's a world of unrighteousness. He goes on to say that it defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. In other words, your tongue is a hellish instrument And then just to make sure you're feeling good and encouraged, he gets down to verse 8 and he says, but we can tame everything except for the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know, restless evil, always waiting, looking for an opportunity to do something that goes contrary to God's will and God's way. Picture the tiger at the zoo that just paces back and forth, right? Restless evil, if that thing ever got out, we're dead. That's your tongue, always waiting for an opportunity to say something dumb, to say something offensive, to say something sinful, or to corrupt yourself or someone else. Is that an overreaction? Is the tongue really that bad? You know, one of the things that's interesting here is that it, it appears that as you go back and you read again, and then again and again, you, you read over this passage several times, you start to notice certain things. Like, James is concerned about the actual words that come out of our mouth, speech. But that doesn't seem to be the, the, the beginning and end of what James is concerned about. Look, for example, just to, to make this point. Look at verse 3 and 4. 
If we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Do you hear that? It's not only a matter of what's in the mouth, but who is steering the mouth, right? There's a rider on the horse. When he gets to the illustration or the analogy of a ship, it's not just that the ship has a rudder, but that the ship has a pilot that steers the rudder. In other words, part of, if not the main problem with the tongue, is what is driving or directing the tongue. The reason that James can use the tongue as the focal point is because in the biblical picture, in many places, the tongue or the speech, the words that come out of someone's mouth, represents the person. If they speak evil, they are evil. Think, think, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to suffer and die. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, says, doesn't do anything, says, it shall not be this way, Lord. And what is Jesus' response to that statement? Get behind me, Satan. You are not set on God's will. This is an overreaction, don't you think? Peter meant what was best. He thought he was saying something wise and helpful. And Jesus says, by what you just said, you're standing in the role of Satan. Your words are being used to try to discourage me or dissuade me from doing what my Father has told me to do and from doing what I have already committed myself to doing. That is satanic. Listen to the way through the Scriptures. Listen to the way that the Scriptures view the importance of our speech and what it represents about the person. In Isaiah 6... When Isaiah has his, his vision of the Lord, do you remember what Isaiah's response is? I saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. His response is, woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. Why? For, Isaiah says, I am a man with unclean lips. And I dwell among a people with unclean lips. He doesn't even bother to get to things like sexual immorality, like theft, like murder. He says, going into the presence of God just simply with the words of my mouth dooms me to destruction. Later in Isaiah, when the Lord is presenting the sin of his people, he says this in Isaiah 59, 2 through 3. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What, what are these iniquities? What are these sins that have separated you from God? Listen to what he says. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. 
You don't even have to speak it loud enough for someone to hear. Just muttering it under your breath. In Romans chapter 3, when Paul says, is there anyone who's better than another? And he says, no, certainly not. What have we been saying? All of us are guilty of sin. One of the ways that Paul goes about proving that everyone is guilty of sin and deserving of God's judgment is what he says in 3, 13, and 14. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And then turn to Matthew chapter 12. Look at verses 36 and 37. Let's just hear it even on the lips of Jesus. Jesus says, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Is there anyone in this room who would be comfortable standing before the Lord and saying, judge me solely on the basis of what I have said, what I have whispered, what I have muttered, what I have said in behind closed doors? Anyone want to take that up? That's what Jesus says is going to happen. You are going to be called to account by your words, whether careless or intentional. Because the tongue reveals so much more than just simply words coming out. It's connected to the very core of our being. This is very insightful. Listen to, to what one man said about the significance of the tongue in, connected to the whole of our lives. He says, the tongue is so much more than what we actually say out loud. In fact, Actual speech is probably only a small percentage of the, uses, or of the use of the tongue. We cannot think without formulating thoughts in words. We cannot plan without describing to ourselves step by step what we intend to do. We cannot imagine without painting a word picture before our inward eyes. We cannot write a letter or a book without talking it through our minds onto the paper. We cannot resent without fueling the fires of resentment in words addressed to ourselves. We cannot feel sorry for ourselves without listening to the self-pitying voice which tells us how unfairly we've been treated. But if our tongue were so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things are cut down before they have a chance to live. This is why in the Psalms, when David poses the question, 
Who may ascend God's holy hill? Who may dwell in the tent of the Lord? Those with clean hands, those with a pure heart, those who speak truth in their heart. Even your inner monologue is viewed as a part of what you do with your tongue. Now what? Well, thanks for nothing, Merritt. Going out here thoroughly depressed and dejected. Are you still in Matthew? Okay, go back to Matthew if you're not still there. We cheated a little bit to get to the, the brunt of what Jesus was saying in 36 and 37. Go up a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 12 and start at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And then Jesus goes in to say that your words will justify you or condemn you. Yes, we sin with our tongue. Yes, our sin is powerful and unable for us to control. But here's the hope. The hope is the new life that we get with Jesus Christ. The hope is that God through the work of Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, takes evil and perverse people who demonstrate their evil and perverse natures, that he takes them and makes them into new creatures. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, 21 through 24. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin... And then notice, how does Peter go to demonstrate the fact that Jesus was sinless? Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Listen, listen, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Every careless, evil, hurtful, 
word that you have spoken or will ever speak has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. Every one. If it were not for the death of Christ, satisfying God's righteous demand concerning our speech, we would be doomed. But it's even better than that. Still in verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. All that James has been saying is essentially to say that the tongue in its natural environment, operating under normal, natural conditions, is a corrupting disaster waiting to happen. And the only way that anything good can come out of your mouth is if you have been completely changed by the power of Christ. This is point number three. Our tongue works from our nature. Go back to James chapter 3 and look at what he says in verses 9 through 12. With it, that is, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. How can he say that if he has already said that no one can tame the tongue? No one can bring it under control. Why does he come at the end and say that we ought not to talk that way? It's because we are not now who we once were before Christ. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? The reason that James can, on the one hand, deeply wound us and convict us over the sin of our speech, and then at the same time turn around and say, but it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, it ought not to be this way. Is because James is addressing people who have been given new natures in Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. And if you are not a slave to sin, you are certainly not a slave to your speech and to your tongue. By the justifying and sanctifying work of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been made new so that your speech can now begin to take on characteristics of truth and grace and mercy and edification rather than filth, and immorality, and corruption. One of the clearest, easy, not easy, one of the clearest, most direct ways that you can give to your life in Christ is to do it through your speech. I would love it. I do love it because it's happened. P. 
people come into this church and they comment or they remark on the fact that people are friendly. They talk to them, right? There it is again, speech, the power of words, the power of personal address. They listen to the way that we talk to one another. They listen to the words that we say in our prayers. They listen to the words that we sing. All of those things bearing witness and testifying to our life in Christ. Now the challenge is, when you get up out of the pew and you walk out these doors, are your words going to continue to bear witness to the life that we have in Christ or not? God help us to be the kind of people who speak faithfully and consistently the kind of words that make the power of Christ look real and attractive. Let's pray. Father, would you take this group, we, us, these children who are so mixed up and messed up in the thoughts and the words that course through our heart that then are expelled through our mouth that both deny you and your word, whether we intend to or not, would you be patient with us and would you give us the transforming work of your spirit so that we would be continually conformed to the image of Christ, that we would become, day by day, the kind of people whose words are used to speak truth and to give life. Give us, Father, a greater desire to use our words to praise you and to express our thanksgiving and gratitude to you and to one another. A greater desire to do that than to ridicule or to put people down or to criticize. Help us to speak the truth with love, with grace. And let that be one of the distinguishing characteristics and features of the life that we live and that we share with one another. Do it, Father, so that the life of Christ would be made evident in our midst and so that we and others would be able to see that the Spirit is working in us and among us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.